Hello everybody, welcome to episode 143 of G.I. Joburg, Living the Adventure with Ronald Hoff. This is your host, Stephen, just to let you know that this is an announcement from the future of the past to say that we, we started this podcast a little bit cold. Uh, Ronald and the boys were talking so spiritedly about a photograph that Ronald had dug up of his childhood room that uh, we decided to leave that conversation in. So if you are feeling a little bit lost at the beginning of this conversation, head on down to our Facebook group, ask to join, you will be allowed in, <laughs> of course, and we will have published this image of his room uh, in conjunction with the podcast. So hopefully that clears up all the confusion. Without further ado, let's jump straight in and live the adventure with Ronald Hoff. Possibly in... Um... Is this your childhood room, Ronald? Yes. Excellent. A hammerhead, front and center. That was one of my childhood toys as well, and boy, did I love it. Ah, I see you had the Razorback. I circled that on the European... I think it was the 1991 catalog. The Well, it probably wasn't um, uh, the catalog that was common in, in the Netherlands, but I think in the UK... Um, and Spain, and I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of the language that languages that were printed on it. Anyways, that's besides the point. I had the Razorback circled as like, want, I want this, I must have it, and yeah. I never did. But so. and if you if you look at the photo, you can also see a septic tank, mm. and that's one of the things I was forced to buy. Well, it was a birthday present at the end because the original his tank was never available here, and just. I really needed to, you know, have that ball in my hand. <laughs> this is a great conversation in and of itself, and I'll tell you why. I also had the septic tank, and then, subsequent to owning the septic tank, saw images in a comic book for a mail-order his tank, and I was right. like, wow, septic tank looks really great in black. <laughs> and then I took, I took a, 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 a Sharpie or a, a felt tip pen, and I scribbled black all over my septic tank yeah because the, mm. the thing is you know here in the netherlands at some point uh, not only european releases were available in the stores but also u.s releases for example i remember a liquidator that both the u.s release and the european release were available at the same time in in the same store mm. and you could see the the quality difference uh, uh, because of that but also because American versions were released here, you would also get the product folder and the um, the mail order forms, you know. Mm. And well, of course, I read all the um, all the small prints, and it always said uh, only available in the U.S. You know, Oof, just and that really bothered me. So, <laughs> oh, it bothered us all, my friend. So about his tank, you know, his tank was one of those things that I really wanted. It was always in the in, in the cartoon, of course, and in the comics. And but when I saw that in a mail order form, I thought, well, I just want to order that. You know, why is there no system, you know, that I can just order it? And then at some point, of course, the internet came and the early days of ebay when i restarted collecting well that of course the hiss was one of the first things i ordered excellent excellent 
Uh, before we move past this, I mean, your your artwork over on the, the right-hand side of that picture, stunning, man. Is that a C-Ray? Yeah, and did you see the, the, the door-sized drawing of Dr. Oh, Dr. Mindbender? <laughs> I'm gonna send this on to to uh, to the boys if I can. Yeah, thank you. That'd be cool. Like I'm hearing all of this and I'm like, I want to see it. Yeah, I thought it, it would be nice to share something from the past. It's wonderful. It really is. We are definitely all about nostalgia. <laughs> Accidentally sent it to Larry Homer. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, Larry Homer. Here's a picture of Ronald Hoff's room. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here it is, you hogs. Bam. Now I can zoom in because sometimes when you look at pictures on Facebook, it's always, I mean, on the Facebook Messenger. Okay, let's see. How, Hammerhead, I would have, I was already jealous of you as a kid, seeing that you have one of <laughs> So, hey, do you uh, isolate animation cells to get that mind bender? Because it does look like it's in the animation style. Yeah, it's from the uh, Order of Battle. Uh, oh. Uh, yeah, these are cool, Ronald. Like, I like these. The, the, sorry, the artworks are awesome. Actually, I saved all those um, drawings. Mm. Mm. Great. Wow. Well done. <laughs> you were a chronicler of this hobby even back then. <laughs> Had the foresight to save it all. Jeez. Well, welcome, listeners. If you if you haven't realized yet, this is another episode of G.I. Jarberg, and we're interviewing a, a longtime fan and someone we absolutely love, Ronald Hoff. Yeah, and as you just heard, we we uh, were just talking about a, an amazing picture he shared with us of his childhood room, and it's it's amazing. This so much mm. stuff. You are very well it's organized, so Ronald. <laughs> <laughs> That's also one of the reasons I I am sharing this with you because you can see how um, um, meticulous I am with things. And you know that's also connected to the topic of today, of course, restoration. Mm. And um, you know I'm all about quality um getting things in the right order and yeah <laughs> collectors <laughs> like you allow collectors like me to sleep easy at night yeah yes knowing that there's a pristine version of everything that we take out there <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely does make me sleep better mm-hmm. well actually after your after your bug review i just bought a second to, with the intention to take it outside ah <laughs> mm. oh, that's might fantastic. i suggest a gopro as well because submerging a toy is one thing, but being able to see it... Well, I mean, I I, I believe you're an avid underwatersman yourself. I mean, you were a, a diver, if I'm not mistaken, Ron. Right. I'm, yeah, I'm a scuba diver. Well, just grab a mask and some fins, and if you are in a body of water large enough to actually play with that thing, get down there. Get underneath the surface and, and see <laughs> see a bug... In the only environment where it actually makes sense. Right. <laughs> in its natural habitat. Yeah. <laughs> but we just, yeah. oh man, that was a, that was a cold open. Hello everybody. Yeah. This is G.I. Joburg. <laughs> uh, we are podcasting with, as Rob mentioned, a dear fan of ours, a friend of ours, in fact, someone we, we've had some ongoing rapport for a number of years now. And you should all who are listening to this be very grateful to this man because he is the reason G.I. Joburg has not only a defiant, but also a classic rattler, amongst other things. Uh, Ronald is an absolute squire of, of, of this project, of this podcast, of the YouTube channel, and it is a great thrill and something that's been long overdue uh, that he joins us now on the podcast. Hello, Ronald. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Uh, I'm happy to join. It's, uh, well, actually, um, 
it's uh, it's wonderful to to finally be able to talk to you guys. And I'm really glad that the stuff I, I sent you, especially the Defiant, of course, um, is fulfilling a long time wish. I had pretty much sworn off ever getting the damn thing. Actually, yeah. when, when I reached out to you guys about that, uh, it was because of one of your podcasts, I believe. Um, at some point, I'm not sure which one it was, but I think Stephen, you um, said that, you know, you thought you would probably never get your hands on one of these and um, i thought well let's just make it happen <laughs> you thought Which, wrong steven <laughs> yeah is music to the ears of any collector of this legendary toy line to have someone turn around and say that impossible dream that you had let's make it a reality uh, yeah and i always think it can be done you know <laughs> it was it, it took some doing but it can be done. Uh, I still was... think I should have shipped it in uh, three or four boxes. Uh, <laughs> and of course, shipping cost would have not. So we took a risk and it's we well. It's 99.9% yeah. <laughs> I While it will always pain me, uh, I mean, for those of you listening to this who aren't aware, um, the Defiance came with some rather unfortunate um, damage via the post. You know, it was a dark day for G.I. Joburg. I was a little bit upset with myself, like disappointed. And, you know, to to have something so pristine and so beautiful, because Ronald really pulled out all the stops. He gave it top to bottom, a, a I suppose, a soapy bath and clean. And it was exquisite. The colors were were vibrant. Uh, it yeah, was dust free. Even defiance are always dirty. Indeed. <laughs> they're always, you know, stored in an attic or a shed or something because they're so big. So, um, you know, a huge layer of dust and grease and who knows what is always on them. And you really so, have to get in there because the yeah. fineries of that detail, it, it, I mean, the sculpt is immaculate. But, I mean, all those grooves, all those crannies, all those nooks, you know, you have to get in there with, like, a toothbrush, several toothbrushes, fine ones. And anyways... Besides the point, uh, to to have something so immaculate and so finely stickered and everything arrive damaged was heartbreaking. It was devastating, and it it made me question whether I wanted to continue in this hobby because our location <laughs> all the way down here is always going to be prohibitive. And you know, maybe it's a case of like quit while you're ahead. Postage costs are getting higher. Uh, the risks involved with uh, getting like large ticket items only increase almost exponentially, um, given their fragility. But there was a silver lining to the story. Not only was I able to, <laughs> um, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, like almost porcelain vase, uh, super glue <laughs> style, this shattered uh, gantry door back together. I mean... It's, That's it's, really amazing what you did there. It's unnoticeable. Yeah. And it was shattered into yeah. hundreds of pieces. I mean, I've seen it up close afterwards. But Ronald championed our insurance claim, and we were paid out in full, not by the South African post office, <laughs> oh, forget that, but by the Dutch um, uh, postal service. And so Whammy! the happy ending to the story is G.I. Yeah, right. Joburg has a fully sponsored Defiant. Completely paid for by the wonderful the Dutch. Dutch postal service. <laughs> ah, I'm a, a slightly different compensation. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Yeah, for all our heartbreak and all our hours. Oh, jeez, Ron, don't get me started on that process. 
I would like to to offer a, diff- a slightly different perspective on that story. I'm all ears. It was different for me, you see. I saw, it, I firstly for me, I thought it was one of the most amazing things ever. Like that was such a great day. I mean, I came down to to Cape Town to kind of hang hang out with the guys uh, because yeah, I needed to, and it was awesome. And um, and it just happened to coincide with the arrival of the Defiant. You know, we sort of planned it a little. Um, so I went down for that. Stephen and I had like come off like a really long road trip together, which was, uh, I mean, road trips and GI Joe book were kind of like a thing. So that was incredible. And then we got to open this toy and yeah, okay, fine. It had a few parts that were broken. I didn't quite feel that break. I didn't feel that it was broken for me. Like I know that Steve felt it a lot more intensely because it, you know, the, the thing was sort of directed in his, it was put in his direction. But for me, I was like, oh, my word, it's a defiant. I was just blown away by the fact that it's there. It exists. It's so cool. I just wanted to play with the damn thing. Um, But Steven got a very cool project. So he got a defiant and he got a fun project. It's like he got a model kit and a new toy all in one on the same day. (laughs) He got to do some Cape Town style Kintsugi, which is that uh, Japanese art form, which breaks and repairs, uh, you know, uh, like things with uh, gold. Uh, so it's kind of like that. Just it's not gold. It's Tamiya cement, which you know is expensive enough to be gold. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen. You know, GI Joburg has this amazing defiant, and for me, it was just a really cool day. I was like, wow, the defiant! This thing's amazing. I'm like, you can put stuff that big in a shipping box. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, and that that preceded me getting a pterodrome, actually. Ron, I want you to take us back in time, man. So you're from Holland. Put us into perspective of what it was like growing up and, and your acquaintance with G.I. Joe. I mean, I get that it was as big a deal for you as it was for us. So in spite of our rather remote locations, we have that in common. But your acquaintance with a real American hero while growing up in the Netherlands... What what was your first Joe toy? What was the was there was it a pr- proliferation of GI Joe toys at like the supermarkets, or was it something that was quite specialized and you had to go to a specialty toy shop to 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 get the items that you wanted? Yeah, well, um, my first um, introduction with the toy was actually when I was playing at a friend's place, and um, I saw this beautifully detailed white uh, vehicle. And I thought, wow, what is this? You know, great quality, um, great details. And only later when I went to the toy store, I found out it was G.I. Joe. But I was attracted to the quality and Mm -hmm. to the to the to the sculpting of the toy. So that was my uh, trigger, so to say. Uh, And that white vehicle was the snowcat. So the snowcat, and of course, I also needed an opponent. So I also bought a ferret and the crimson twins. So that was my first set of uh, GI Joe toys. Oh, cool! Excellent. That that's such a nice combo. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Prior to that, had you been uh, sort of growing up with Playmobil vehicles? I mean, what what was your precursor to GI Joe? Oh, Star Wars, perhaps. No, not really. Um, oh, okay. No, actually, I also had an interest in mask toys, if you're yes. familiar with 
that. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. Love mask. Actually, I had a little of everything. Some mm. some Ghostbusters. Well, something Strike some, Command. Well, <laughs> but only GI Joe and Mask really lasted. I was thought with Transformers they were well beautiful in vehicle mode, but rather stiff in robot mode. Well, mm-hmm. once the masterpieces came out, uh, that was corrected, of course. But um, <laughs> but Mask is actually uh, one of the collections I also have complete, and that's Excellent. beautiful stuff. It's really I can really recommend it if you're not um, familiar with it. It's beautiful, and I passed that on to the next generation. Actually, uh, my little nephew uh, has it. So for the yeah. past few years, he's been giving, uh, he's been receiving uh, presents. <laughs> yeah. wow. Presents. Oh, Uncle Ronald is the best. Real choice. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, you just don't get him like that anymore, unfortunately. Wow. Okay. So we're off the mark with the awesome snowcats and the indomitable twins and the ferrets. But right. what would you say would be your favorite? Figure and vehicle. Wow. So right now in the entire yeah. Wow. Well, I would. I've always had um, a soft spot for the tomahawk. Mm. It's just beautifully sculpted, and it has a lot of play value. Yeah, you and Stephen are definitely separated at birth. <laughs> <laughs> well, look. I mean, it's not difficult to see the appeal of a tomahawk. Mm. Yeah. There's so much you can do with it. You know, you're transporting the troops. You you can do aerial battles with the with the guns. Um, yeah, no, the Tomahawk is a brilliant vehicle. When when it comes to play uh, value, I still you know have um well, the Snowcat still warms my heart in that sense. Not only because it was my first, but it's also well, you've seen many re-releases. Um, yeah. but I took it you know outside in the backyard to play with and. Uh, it's yeah. It it has many um, options. Sense. Did you ever feel it was quite limited by its color scheme? Well, I just disregarded that as a kid. Oh, very good. There we go. I think you know it's all it's all about the imagination in the end. Mm. But something I could not accept was a, a blizzard in Tiger Force colors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was a, an odd choice. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I think it was made sense of in the catalog image because Blizzard was sort of skiing down a a dusty slope, and I suppose the inference I made was like because I mean I I didn't know anything about sandboarding or or anything like that really, but I assumed that perhaps you could ride sand dunes as you would a, a snowy mountain. So I just kind of like thought, oh, this is this is his gig. This is what he does. Yeah, he just dresses really warmly for it. Yeah, <laughs> but the uh, the the tiger cats was my way of really justifying uh, using the snow cat in other mm. environments. Yeah, that's a, that's mm. a good reuse of so, mold. Yeah. Yeah, I think we discussed it two podcasts ago when I was. Discussing my most recent acquisitions and saying that, yeah, the tiger cat, you could play with it uh, in the jungle. You could play with it on Mars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it fits. I mean, it, it doesn't fit anywhere. Therefore, it fits everywhere. <laughs> that makes Speaking so of much playing, sense. 
Speaking of playing um, with toys uh, and stuff, I pulled down the old... Um, okay, uh, you know, it's not the Skyhawk. In this case, I like to call it the Snowhawk. You know, talking about out-of-season toys as well. I mean, because, okay. uh, you know, it's all, uh, it's the one that came with the um, Basilisk in the 50th anniversary two-packs, vehicle two-pack. Um, and it's a white version of the Skyhawk. Um, like made for Arctic conditions, and Does it's a really cool action with the glass windows. Yes, it comes with that and the basilisk. Hold on, didn't that come with the danger at the docks? Danger in the docks. Oh, that was a vamp. That was a yeah. That's a vamp. That's a right. vamp that comes with danger in the docks. Yeah. Gotcha. gotcha. So um, I was Paul just thinking. Paul is our modern expert, Stephen. Trusting him. Yeah, I know, but 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 Paul still makes mistakes. All the time. Um, but no. I just took it for a small little jaunt today, and it was great. I love that little vehicle. Although there is one really irritating design flaw on the modern era version of the Skyhawk. When you're flying it around and you just want to use your thumb to pop those thrusters, you know, to, to turn them in from VTOL mode or into flight mode or from flight mode into VTOL mode, I managed to flick it off two or three times, like literally physically shoot it off the poor Skyhawk. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> and okay. Impressively, I caught it in the air. I was like, Poof, oh, and I caught it. I was like, yeah, yeah come through reflexes. Nobody saw that. <laughs> and then, but yeah, it is, it is a kind of like an annoying design flaw. And I think, I, okay, I'm, I'm generalizing now. It's not fair to say it's a problem on all of the modern era. It could just be that maybe by the time they did this, the mold or the plastic that they're using wasn't as snug as it was before. So, for Look, example, I've got the, the 25th anniversary Ghost Hawk which yeah. came with lift tickets, um, it holds its position, holds it well, it doesn't pop off, but yeah. it has the addition of two, I suppose they're kind of angled um, uh, surfaces that prohibits it from being in a vertical orientation. It'll always be slightly angled. Like, you can't have the turbines or the thrusters angled straight down, as you can Okay, so they the totally original. fixed that. Oh, okay, did they so- yeah, so they fixed it. So you can go totally vertical on, or at least I was getting it right. Huh. You can go totally vertical, but then I think uh, maybe it, it, by it being allowed to sort of do that, it gives it a bit of a weapons really shoot feature now. It, creates <laughs> it a bit kind of, of wedges itself off. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ron, did you have any love for the modern era, or are you pretty set yeah, on... Yeah, I was on... just thinking, I actually have two modern snowcats, Um huh. I'm not sure. I think from 2001 or something with with the um, uh, gray and blue um, pattern with that sound gimmick. Um, But what I love about it, they actually um, fixed the missile launcher, the the um, because it was so fragile, Mm -hmm. uh, the the connecting pieces, but they changed the. the sort of plastic uh, for it. It was a softer plastic, and um, now, you know, those little uh, pegs don't break anymore. So that was a great um, fix in that sense. I think it has been a running change, and, yeah, the, the, the reuses that Paul speaks of, the Cobra Basilisk, also uh, is quite sturdily made. And, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, the uh, the missiles launch, which is... I suppose take it or leave yeah. it. You can either be a fan of uh, spring-loaded missile launches or not, but they're pretty unobtrusive. That version, of course, I, I changed it into a classic one in the sense that, of course, classic snowcat stickers were put on 
and I used the Battle Gear uh, missiles uh, mm. to put them on. Actually, their uh, Tomahawk, you know, Battle Gear uh, Tomahawk missiles fit into the missile launcher rack from the from that Snowcat, and with a little um, adjusting, you can also uh, put the ski torpedoes. Uh, on the snowcat again, because with that wow. version of the snowcat, um, you cannot just put those key torpedoes on. You have to uh, adjust it a bit. Uh, an adjustment that uh, you made, which I was quite a fan of, is swapping out Ghost Striker X-16 missiles for Condor missiles. Yeah, that's actually quite an expensive uh, upgrade, but <laughs> but they fit perfectly. <laughs> well, they are beautiful. I mean, yeah, the 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 brightness of the neon orange uh, missiles on the X-16 are pretty impossible to uh, explain yeah. away. It's much nicer to have them in a, in a deep crimson, which, yeah, it, it looks looks like it's meant to be, to be honest. Well done on that. Together with the stickers from, from Toy Hacks, the Ghost Striker really looks great, you know, that you don't have those paper... Uh, stickers with with paper background, but the transparent background makes it look mm. much much better. <laughs> what I also did with that uh, plane is actually um, include two bomb racks from the Mud Fighter and include uh, the U.S. release uh, uh, Devastator missiles. So you also have some small missiles, also in uh, that, that maroon color. Oh, excellent. Yes, because the European release devastated themselves were a little bit, uh, I don't know, they were also sort of neon, weren't they? They didn't have that yeah. deep Yeah, they're deep much, much red. brighter. No, they're quite bright. Yeah. Mm. We had the same release here, as a matter of fact, unfortunately. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so, so that, that way I transformed something uh, neon into <laughs> into to something more, you know, vintage look. Yes, yeah, and while I, I, I oftentimes find myself defending the neon 90s, I, <laughs> I can't deny it looks much more tasteful and, and better. Yes, I will make that admission, uh, the way you've reset those colors. Excellent. So the, I suppose the overarching topic this evening, uh, and, and a very important reason to have Ron on the show is one of restorations. Ronald is, experts in a number of techniques and hopefully we can at least scratch the surface on some of them this evening does any recent restoration come to mind ron have you been working furiously on something right up until the moment we started speaking oh well <laughs> my last uh, restoration was a sky striker i believe yeah. of course of course uh, i was surprised you didn't nominate that as your favorite vehicle to be honest i do know that you have uh a thing, a, a big soft spot for that, that fine. Oh, too. it's beautiful, yes. It was also one of my must-haves as a kid, but I never could get my hands on it somehow. But uh, now I actually have quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite a few? Could you could you put a number to it? I mean, we're not hoarders, right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, at first I thought two would be good enough, but I think I just, I think I have five or something or six, I don't know. Uh, different versions, you know, Action yeah. Force, Canadian, US, uh, one parachute, two parachutes, uh, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. You're working on a full squadron there. That's pretty awesome. But the thing is, you know, I live in a, in a city apartment, so I have to make choices. 
I did manage to buy a larger house, uh, so yeah, uh, I have some more room to spare, but um, still I have to make choices. So I may have to let go some of them again. Oh no! Well, I know no, I know cool. a place where they can go. Yeah, <laughs> uh, everybody knows your name. <laughs> um, quick correction on on my on my snowhawk. Sorry, it came with a wolf, with the oh, modern yes. re-release of the. There we go. I keep thinking it came with the basilisk. You know, yeah, but no, it came the, with the wolf. Uh, it was the the striker, the FOE striker that came with the basilisk, Paulie. Yeah, that's, that's what was sticking in my mind, and I was like, Ugh. yeah. It wasn't the Skyhawk, I swear. Yeah, no, it was also bugging me. Like, something was off about it, so I just quickly thought I'd take a look. Sneaky, um, sneaky. I like but, that. But uh, coming back to uh, Ronald's, like, variations and wanting to own a few variations of, of a vehicle, and I know that that's not something that perhaps you consciously do. Um, it's just that somehow it just appeals to you. Like, I have this problem with Metal Gear Solid, for example, the video game. Yeah, uh, I own... a problem, Paul. I suppose it's not a problem. It's not a problem, but it is kind of a problem. <laughs> I have the, um, and I think this is also, it's got to do with some kind of remorse as a child. My buddy always, David, the famous David I keep mentioning, he had the Japanese Metal Gear Solid because he got it sent to him from Hong Kong, or he bought it in Hong Kong. Either way, he got it when it came out, and it had the cool Japanese cover. And uh, I only managed to, at that time, I could only afford to get the pirated version of the game, so I never really owned a real one. But then as like I got older, like as soon as Metal Gear Solid 2 came out, then I managed to get my hands on like Metal Gear Solid 2, the PAL release. Then I got the um, the second disc that they did, Subsistence, and I got the PAL release of that. I now also have American releases for both. I have like a three or four different collected editions of Metal Gear Solid, which range from the PAL and the American versions. And I have quite a few, and it's crazy because they all actually offer their own sort of niche thing um, in the sense of, like, maybe the packaging design, how the manual right. was done. Teensy, stupid, like, little things. But, like, I didn't set out to go and do that. I just I just, I just see it, and I go, oh, I want to buy Metal Gear Solid. But I'm like, I own it, but I still want to buy it. It's, it's like that kind of feeling. Well, I um, know what you mean, uh, Paul. I mean, with me, I'm, I try to keep my numbers limited in that sense because of space. Uh, but mm-hmm. sometimes it just happens, you know, sometimes you just happen to find a quality piece or something that, that grabs your interest somehow. Uh, for example, with the Sky Strikers, um, there was um, a guy on Facebook selling his childhood coll- collection in Canada. Mm-hmm. And those pieces were really untouched. Uh, so beautiful wow. quality. Uh, a dragon fl- I bought, well, I could have bought much more, but I bought a Sky Striker, a Dragonfly, and a Skyhawk, and and some figures, I believe, but they were all in such pristine condition. I thought, well, I just need to save them, you know, just to... Mm. <laughs> they, yeah, they need to go to a good home. That's, that's, that's what I was thinking. Uh, I like that justification. I think I'm going to shop more. Make sure things <laughs> go to a right home, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's very noble. I've used that exact turn of phrase when I've bought stuff. Oh, this transformer looks so lonely on the shelf here. It needs a good home. I'm <laughs> <on> strike. <laughs> and now here he is. I have many friends for you. I have many friends. <laughs> um, but like, uh, I know when I was in Kokomo Toys uh, last year, unbeknownst to my GI Joe crew. I was very tempted to buy a, a Night Raven again. I was 
I haven't. I, and, and it was so weird because like I walked into Kokomo and I'm like, okay, like it's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a sensory explosion, right? Uh, if you're a toy fan mm. and once the, the sort of dust had sort of settled and I could actually see things for what they were, you know, like as, and I can actually start seeing the detail as opposed to just the forest, if you know what I mean. I started seeing, oh, a bug. And I was like, oh, wow, I want a bug. Oh, I've got one. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, Night Raven. I should get, oh, I've got one. <laughs> you know? It would like, be so much fun just to buy another one, you know, to actually yeah. physically buy it yourself. Right? It was They're just so like, nice, you, know, you almost want to buy them twice. No, I, I, I totally get that. Because we spend so much of our time pining for a thing. We get yeah. that thing. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh. Well, I, I still want to feel the emotion of getting it again. Yeah. Which is why when I saw a uh, a very nice condition mauler for sale uh, while I was in, in Singapore on their uh, sort of app called Carousel, which is a Singapore-only answer to eBay, really, I was seriously tempted there. I was like, but I've got a mauler in perfect condition waiting for me back home. Why would I buy this? But it, it was like... Yeah. How often do you see that just pop up, like a mauler with all its sort of accessories? That, that's that's how I bought a second mauler. <laughs> and that's how you've bought, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, how, however many Sky Strikers. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it has to stop somewhere, but it has yeah. crossed your path. Well, you are in a rather fortunate and unusual position uh, to be living in Europe of all places. And have enough space to store and display your flag. I am quite envious of your display solution with the flag. You've got it on a wheelie sort of uh, case that you've constructed, which can move. It's a custom-made cabinet, especially made for those three big ones. Excellent. And what's more is it has display space beneath it. You have glass sections where you've created... The underwater world, as it were, but like yeah. in a very kind of feng shui, clean, very neatly dis- displayed style. I mean, you didn't sort of go into the kind of the the the, the diorama creating uh, fad <laughs> and try and create like I don't know the inside of a fish tank basically with um with sand and and various bits yeah. of terrain. Instead, it's like it the is IKEA like this... of yeah, it is gorgeous yeah. and it is showing yeah. off the toys. In the most pristine and immaculate fashion, which I'm, as I say, I'm very envious. I think a lot of collectors would be because people who do tend to have enough space for something like the flag will then overpopulate the area around it. So the flag doesn't get a chance to shine and the, right. the, the selection of vehicles on it and around it don't get a chance to shine. You've managed to create the best balance I think I've ever seen. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. Because I like to, you know, just well, it's it's actually like like an exhibition in a museum or something. You want mm. every piece to to shine in its own right. And if you if you clutter uh, the space, then nothing gets any attention. So it's it's best to be selective. That's my uh, opinion. Mm. In a lot of ways, uh, it's like you've designed it in your living space to also appeal to your sort of adult sensibilities. You know, when you have friends over it's done in such a sort of chic way or should i say in such a stylized way that it doesn't jump out as oh my god i'm a creepy toy collector <laughs> it's like you know <laughs> I, I, I also get uh, positive feedback on my collection even though most people don't 
understand what it's about, but um, mm. they can see uh, it's, you know, there's dedication behind it and that, that it looks great. So, yeah. We got your favorite vehicle as a Tomahawk. I'm just circling back because it, it, it occurred to me that, um, well, we got, we got swept up in the, the course of the conversation and there's nothing wrong with that, but we didn't get your favorite figure. If you were to, you know, as of this evening in 2019, oh dear. try and settle on one. There's oh one dear. Before. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps this might, um, be of some assistance or it might be of no assistance whatsoever, but, uh, does it line up with your favorite character or is figure a sort of a separate? I think I would also uh, keep toy design in mind. Okay, excellent. Uh, for example, uh, one of my favorites is, uh, is the Crimson Guard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's hard to beat. It, that's just, you know, perfect. Mm. It's, and I always love the backstory of the Crimson Guard, you know, that they just are part of society, uh, well-educated, um, you know, working in places where they can influence uh, society. Yeah, it, it probably is a, a further reason why I cannot really embrace another version of the Crimson Guard, because it was perfection out of the gate. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I've tried to, very hard to, to try and find the love for the Crimson God Immortal. And I keep coming back to the fact that the only thing I like on him is that he can give it to Paul. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> is the, the classic Crimson God symbol on his, his left yeah. bicep. That's, mm. that's the, the best. Little, the best part of him is, is yeah. The is, best part of him yeah. is something that he's directly <laughs> borrowed from his, his his lineage. It's like oh. Ferraris, right? Everybody has their favorite Ferrari. Everybody has a. When you say Ferrari, you guys all thought of a Ferrari, and I can tell you now, everybody had a slightly different one. You know, some people thought F40, some uh, people thought the Dino, some people thought a Testarossa. It's kind of like that. It's like that's that's how it is with GI Joe as well. I find like all the others are cool. But there's only one that's really your Ferrari. Like if somebody says Storm Shadow, you have an image of Storm Shadow in your head. And okay, in our case, for most of us, probably the same. <laughs> but um, but yeah, the Crimson Guard is very much like that. And yeah, I, I couldn't agree with Steve Moore. It's perfection out of the gate. Right. In fact, it should have just re-released the same figure. But yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who needs the Python Patrol version, right? <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Who needs the Python Patrol at all? Well, mind you, I don't know. Do you do, do you have any love for the Python Patrol Conquest? Well, that does look good, I must admit. It mm. does. But it I does try look. not to collect sub-teams, even though ah, I do have Patrol. <laughs> there is something tricky about a sub-team. You know, it doesn't doesn't always feel right. Like, it kind of muddies up the display a bit to have yeah. anything but the first release of a vehicle. Right. But it's also uh, what we started with. I mean, some of those first release vehicles were never never available to me. And once they were available, then, you know, the substitutes um, got sold as quickly as possible. For example, I had a Tigerfly as a kid. Once I had a real Dragonfly, the Tigerfly was out of the door as soon as possible. Hmm. Wow. I can understand that with certain sub groups um i can actually fully relate there it's like with uh python patrol is actually a very good example of this i think the conquest is absolutely beautiful like 
I think it's a great vehicle. I can't really get my brain around it being a mass-produced vehicle. I kind of like to see it as it's stolen G.I. Joe tech that they've pythonized and used to insult G.I. Joe the same way G.I. Joe takes over Cobra vehicles and Tiger forces them up on like the two occasions that they've done that. Um, <laughs> but like the thing is, it's just it, it it is a beautiful vehicle. But like the Python Patrol stun. Yeah, if I had a Python Patrol stun my whole life as a kid and then I finally got my hands on the original vintage colors. And I mean, we're talking about the stun here. I would also probably feel a bit more sort of love for the stun. And uh, something our listeners weren't, weren't maybe privy to is we had a small discussion just about uh, the septic tank before we, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, while we were warming up for the podcast. And, okay, so full confession, and I think I may have confessed this in an episode before, I never knew that the septic tank was a reuse of the his tank. Oh. And, <laughs> yeah, like how ridiculous is that? Like when I was a kid, I was like, Poor. I always saw the his tank and the septic tank as like completely different vehicles. And the septic tank was never like a substitute for a his tank. But like if I was in the position that Ronald had mentioned earlier, like I had grown up with only having a septic tank, then I would and then and then learning that it's actually a reuse of the original his. I would also really yearn for the hiss because the original hiss is such a beautiful yeah. classic design, um, and it's and it's worth it's actually worth pursuing, you know. Uh, but then you get somebody like me who really likes the Tiger Force versions of stuff, and admittedly, as much as I think the Dragonfly is a sexy helicopter, I love the Tigerfly. Mm. Tigerfly for me is numero uno. It's number one. It's like that's the best version of that Halo for me. Um, but that's you just me. contradicted yeah. yourself, Paul. No, I know I have. You're, like, you're, 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 you're dissing exception. your original septic tank for, you know, the the pro, progenitor, the the the, the hiss, <laughs> and now you're like, well, I've seen the the classic dragonfly, and nah, tigerfly for me, thanks. But but that's but that's the thing. It's you will get that. That's the point I'm trying to make is you will get that for the most part. And then there's always that one vehicle, or there will always be something that kind of makes you go, huh? Oh, that's actually I'm more connected to the sub team release for of it, for example. Yes, I think what you're getting at is uh, viewing the hobby through nostalgia tinted glasses. Like, sure, the dragonfly is gorgeous. But I imprinted on the Tigerfly because Tigerfly, you know, that definitely. is the catalog image that was burned into my retina as a child, you know, oh, pouring definitely. over this thing, pining for it. Like, I want that. I want that. I want that. Because I think when we encountered the Tiger Force vehicles, it seemed like they came from a bygone era. Like, for some reason, the design, the uh, engineering that went into them, just the, the way they felt and looked and sort of harked back to real vehicles, the fact that they were in a catalog alongside... Raiders and Razorbacks and, you know, latter day G.I. Joe vehicles that were like out of the flippy dippy chippy factory. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> you know. I know exactly what you mean, uh, Stephen. That, that's yeah. exactly how I feel about it. Yeah. But um, I think the point I wanted to make was, and, and trying to support my man Paul, was like, yeah, those vehicles were standouts and they seemed special and the Tiger Force Deco was part and parcel of that special source. Like, mm. for you, that's why they were cool. It's because they were unified by this color scheme, and they were all such high-quality pieces. They were, like, from another another toy line, almost. Yeah, almost. Like, that. that's... Yeah, 
There you if go. They, if they weren't <laughs> unified by the tiger, they wouldn't seem as special. They wouldn't seem as like this self-contained bubble of yesteryear. Yeah, to, to take this a bit further, I mean, you could say, you know, buying a Tiger Force vehicle was actually like buying a time machine, you know, being able to take a step back in time and to get something really special. Until you encounter mm. the originals and you're like, oh, well, that, that makes sense. That's how I ended up with the Tiger Force Blizzard. <laughs> <laughs> Although, uh, also, oddly enough, my first exposure to Blizzard was Tiger Force Blizzard. <laughs> oh, buddy, I only knew Tiger Force the Blizzard converted. Oh no, yeah. wait, no, wait, Blizzard, no, uh, Blizzard was a, a 1988 American release, so we had him down here by about 1991. Yeah. So, yeah. so you, had you not encountered the the white Blizzard? No, no, only until the video game actually. Um, well, a figure that yeah. never found its way into any catalogs uh, that I was aware of or any card backs down here was. Outback. Ah. Of yeah. course, Tiger Force Outback was plastered all over the cardbacks, and we had him in a catalog, and I might have seen him in stores. Might have, might have. But anyways, that so this character, in my mind, only existed the sort of orange t-shirt and white hair combination, and I pined for him back mm. then. I really uh, that version, though. You know, the especially created artwork for the t-shirt and uh, the white hair, that's quite special. <laughs> it it seems to make more sense to me, I must say, and and I am kind of viewing things through this rather strange uh, release schedule point of view. But encountering white T-shirt, red hair, uh, outback as an adult, I'm like, who's this guy? I don't know this guy. This guy doesn't sort of fit with my head canon of what outback should be, and that he's he's a a fair bit older than the rest of the Joes. He's an instructor. He's a survivalist. He's like, essentially like the armed forces, like total hobo. He will show you how to live <laughs> off the land uh, and survive in environments where you would otherwise have been defeated before you'd even encountered the enemy. That's Outback's function. He's a kind of, he's in an advisory role more than like an actual field operative. But then you've got examples written by our beloved birthday boy, Mr. Larry Harmer, happy birthday, Larry, uh, of Outback evading capture in the sort of the, the Soviet bloc. Like that stuff, that's pretty compelling. Mm. Uh, as, a, as a plot line, that was probably Outback's best moment to shine. Getting back to the Joes and then having, uh, you know, not, not, not a very warm welcome from his, his yeah. former buddies. Speaking of, Ronald, we've spoken a bit about the toys. What was the reception of the cartoons and comic books in the Netherlands? Did you guys get much associated media? Um, yeah, well, the cartoons were on TV. Um, Dubbed. And, yeah. Um, but when, uh, when it comes to comics, it was the special mission series that were translated into Dutch. So if you look back on the photo I sent you, mm -hmm. then you will see a stack of books uh, on the lower shelf. Those are all special mission comics. Hmm. Seems to be a taller stack than there should be issues. I mean, weren't there only 28 special missions? Yeah, just about. But these were collected in... Um, uh, I'm not sure what like the English digest. this is. But like a, like a paperback. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay, so like a digest, it would be a digest of like right. they were also some GI Joe comics and other issue, stuff. But I got the yeah the the, yeah. the digest version. Um, and what I noticed, there were some uh, uh, stories of the regular American comic run in uh, in those uh, uh, comics, and Ooh. that's something I never understood. So it's partly. Partly, or most actually, most of uh, the stories were special missions, but there were some included from the uh, regular run. Hmm. I see. So similar to, well, similar but not to the way things were done across the pond in the UK, where the sort of the Action Force comic book had a little bit of original content and then also appropriated um, stories from the American comic yeah. book. Yeah, interesting. And it, it, the thing about this is actually what, you know, my curiosity uh, um, grew, you know, stronger and stronger for years because I wanted to find out all the things that were just referenced at in those special missions comics. For example, the Cobra Civil War, or you know, all mm. those big story arcs. And only years later, in the early 2000s, I got a chance to read the uh, original stories. It's interesting discovering what everyone else's snapshot of this story, of this mythology, was. I mean, yeah. mm -hmm. we're all kind of skewed by, um, well, in, in the cases of anyone living outside of the United States, rather scrappy releases and, right. and sort of piecemeal... Uh, patchings together of what G.I. Joe or Action Force or G.I. Joe the Action Force actually was. Uh, it's, it, it was a, 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 an, a, an interesting moment when we all got access to the, the internet and all of a sudden all the answers were contained therein. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, no, we should perhaps have a podcast episode on like misconceptions. <laughs> oh, that would like, be great. Not, not knowing that, that this, there was such a thing as the Slaughter's Marauders, just like, who are these weirdos with like a pistol each? Boring. <laughs> <laughs> I I've got a question about restoration, um, but it's it's a general question for the whole table, uh, and I, I want to start with Rob because shame I haven't heard his voice yet. Um, <clears throat> no, I've heard him laughing. Um, <laughs> uh, and this is to all of you guys. I mean, uh, uh, Ronald, we we are, we know that you do a lot of restoration, but have you guys ever like? actually fully gone and taken one of your Joe vehicles and sort of quote unquote restored it. And now here's, and here's the, the sort of caveat, like it's not just like fixing it up. Like I know that the find was something that was, it was a, a trauma case that had to be fixed um, for Steve, you know, like he had to, to bring it back to its original state. Um, he saved his sanity. It was a good day. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but like, but I'm talking about like, have you ever like taken one of your vehicles and gone, okay, you know what? I th I would love to see what this looks like if I just hit it with some TLC, some goo gone, uh, maybe go out of my way to find the weapons for it, you know. And I'm gonna start with Rob uh, because I actually don't know if Rob has done this. So like, have you ever done that, Rob, with any of your Joe vehicles or customizing maybe, maybe vehicles? Customizing or restoring, you know, like like has it ever? <laughs> Has it ever, have I ever actually tried to do that? I think the closest that I've ever come to doing that is cleaning them. <laughs> I think, um, in general, I think the vehicles are perfect the way they are. Um, and we've, I think we've always been very lucky to get good versions of, of the vehicles. 
Because also, I think a lot of our vehicle collecting really only started, um, or at least my vehicle collecting only really started when when I became an, an adult and I was old enough to actually buy my own toys. And we really did luck out on the, the versions of the toys that we got. I mean, if I think about our Mambas, our Mambas are fantastic. They were just dirty. And I, I really do, I still remember us kind of, I think we put them in the bath. <laughs> yeah. Submerged them in water and then we kind of cleaned them up and made them look amazing. And it made such a world of difference. Um, I think that's probably the closest I've ever gotten to kind of customizing vehicles um, mm-hmm. is, is just cleaning them. <laughs> right. So I'm probably on like, the, you know, the, the, the other end of the scale from Ron, where Ron is like, fixing things he's making things look beautiful and amazing yeah so my i my experience with fixing is is very limited but i i appreciate what other people can do a lot and i've always been meticulous about my toy collection in some uh, some way or another but as i was starting to get into joe's and stuff i think i was just like maybe a little bit crazy and was trying to get like the best of the best of the best in terms of the specimens and i know that when i would send steven like pictures on ebay he would send more often than not tell me to hold off for a better version or you know like maybe look for something that you know like you know he would point out what was wrong with it he would see things that was wrong that was possibly wrong with the price paul typically the price yes yeah typically the price uh shopping for showroom uh versions of toys which you you're gonna have to pay showroom prices no, and that's true, you see, and, and you know, that, that is something that Steve definitely pointed out to me. Um, so i got to say, like, I've always been a little bit OCD with that kind of thing and, and maybe, quote-unquote, meticulous, sort of, but Stephen has kind of not broken that, but he's just helped me sort of, like, by his actions and by his advice has sort of gotten me to consider, oh, you know, not I, okay, I can't go for a serious beta figure. I just can't. It's difficult for me to. But, you know, for me to sort of go like in the middle tier somewhere there, you know, to find something that I can look at and go, oh, okay, nothing's broken. I can give it a good clean. I can take it further. I can make it look, you know, awesome and whatever. Um, and for me personally, I have two vehicles here that I'd love to restore back to their original um, glory days looking appearance. Um, I've got a Night Raven and I've got a Cobra Condor, um, and they they sexy as hell, all hell. But I'd love to get some repro stickers for both of them, and give them a good, you know, like you know, scrub them up with goo gone, you know, maybe with the Night Raven. There's a little bit of warping on the undercarriage, you know, maybe just you know, strap some elastic bands around it and put it in the sun or with the hair dryer or something to sort of you know get it back into. You no, know, like that's a project I'd love to do. I'm just not getting around to getting damn repro labels, but like that's, that's the, sort of the closest I've gotten is I've taken some of my vehicles and given them a good scrub, but I haven't, but I've had to be careful because I don't want to ruin their stickers. So that's, that's kind of where I get stuck. And then Steve and you like, like what is, what is your operation repro been on your stuff? Uh, fairly basic. Um, you know, if, if there are issues and, and, breaks i i would rather buy a toy that has issues and try and Mm -hmm. find a creative way to correct those issues than to try and hold out for a a minty specimen because i think if i buy a toy that has issues i'm immediately off the hook when i play with it and something goes wrong Uh. because i haven't trashed a mint toy that not no doubt hurt my bank balance to the tune of a mint toy and now i've i've screwed it 
you know, I've I've damaged my investment. Okay, I'm not actually going to cash in this investment, but like you you've paid yeah. for something really nice and you have defaced it. It's your fault now. So to that end, uh, a awesome awesome donation from my pal Ben was a silver mirage. Uh, the silver mirage had the common malady of the the back suspension having caved. You know that little green bar inside that is used to kind of create the suspension, which is supposed to bend. You know, terrible idea with uh, old plastic to have a part that is intended to bend as part of its yeah. day-to-day use. Um, I stretched out a paperclip, wound it around the axle, and uh, pushed it. You know, the the end, other end of the paperclip up into the body of the motorcycle and created metal suspension that way and mm. it's very springy and it has the right tension um to to accommodate two figures weight and still have balance so it is an improvement upon the plastic part um similarly two paper clips on the back of an ore striker whose suspension you know wasn't broken but did sag a bit because age you know it mm. happens to the best of us but uh, <laughs> oh, you, you get a you get a pair of paper clips up into the the wheel arches on either side. There's a perfect shelf for them, in fact. And I yes, kind Steve, of, I'd like yeah. to jump in here because go uh, for it. Yes, Ron, does this play into one of your own resto's? Yeah, no. The thing is, um, what you're saying now is something I really love. You know, I also when when I do restoration, I just love to see how you can use you know just everyday items to fix something to restore its functionality you know mm-hmm. of a vehicle part like the suspension you mentioned and mm-hmm. um, or you know his cannon pins that you can actually elevate the gun and p- position it again uh, rattler landing gear you know you want the function to work mm-hmm. that's important and of course to hopefully improve on a fragile toy's level of durability you know to have the function and to have it Risk-free, you know, no longer be in danger of 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 the common breaks. Uh, when Paul was talking about bending uh, plastic, um, or or did you say it, Steve? Well, no, it was Paul. I would never. I was thinking oh. about the <laughs> the whale. Did you know that actually in the instructions it is stated that you should bend the the veins to to make them more uh, flexible? <laughs> oh my word, that is bonkers! Absolutely bonkers. <laughs> I mean, so many must have broken straight out of the gates if you followed yeah. that advice. <laughs> Even if the plastic is minty fresh, yeah. it's so thin, yeah. so, so thin. Yeah. You know, I break plastic that thin every time I open a 1kg tub of yogurt. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. It's just one it's of those. Like, what? I, mean, I believe what some of the mysteries can be found in, in the instructions of G.I. Joe vehicles. For example, the fantail railing of the flag at the back. Why is that always missing? Well... In the instructions, there's nothing written about actually placing it there. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, it reminds me of a terrible I story. I mean, you do see own. it on, on, on the pictures, but yeah. there's no instruction of placing it there. Huh. Well, I, I must say, I, I seldom actually read the words oh. uh, to the, the, the instruction manual. Because in the European instructions, do you remember, they were they were placed... Away from the image. Right, yeah. They were sort of in a, like a language box down below. You had to kind of look at the picture and then read, okay, picture number one, this is the write-up. 
Yeah, at least the Americans had it in one language and it was like right in the, the, the picture box. But uh, Ronald, yeah, what are your do. sort of favorite hacks, man? You've heard, uh, mine were basically about uh, uh, suspension. Oh, I did actually use hydrogen peroxide on a snow job, but my results were hmm, not not pristine, perfect white. Yeah. Are you I, are you perhaps a, a dab hand at the process? I've had good and bad experiences with that, and I think I should try it a bit more to see what's going on. I'm also reading up on what other people do. For example, with figures, I've read that it's better to just place them above the solution and not in the solution. Just oh, have, use you know, the fumes. Just yeah. the fumes. That should be mm. enough. Because I did, um, let me think, I did the Terradrome ring with peroxide, and that's still good. Um, but in the past, I also did a Defiant, and a year later, it was yellowed again, and worse even. So I'm not doing that again. <laughs> yeah, peroxide is, is quite a, a bugger, actually. Well, what, um, what I prefer, actually, um, I think I've told that once some people would not agree with me, but my experiences have been uh, positive until now. For some types of plastic, you can just use household bleach. Mm. And some people say, you know, the plastic will get brittle. And uh, But my experience is that it's fine. And that way you can restore flight pods, hammers, avalanches, uh, all the toys with a so sort of matte finish. Oh yeah, because the the matte finish is more ABS. It's like it's it's more of an ABS kind I of suppose, plastic. Yeah. Yeah, and then the yeah, because like we have a similar thing with the Gundam kits as well. Because Gundam, uh, the older Master Grades used to have most of the inner frame would come on a sprue set that was ABS plastic, and ABS plastic is surprisingly more resistant to paint. So. Like when you when you spray it, you have to actually give it like you have to sand it down a little bit, you know, to give it some serious teeth right. and then spray on your primer and then do everything yeah. because it is quite resistant to chemicals. Whereas the sort of more uh, I'm going to say polystyrene because it is a derivative of polystyrene, but the more sort of harder shell feeling polystyrene mm -hmm. is more susceptible to paint and, and actually even more susceptible to when you use um, like enamel thinners, when you do a wash or something like that. Um, yeah. Bandai plastic is very famous for cracking, for actually forming cracks when you do that uh, wash technique without putting on some kind of clear varnish. Okay. So, yeah, so uh, there definitely is a middle ground. I know that uh, for some of the gold chrome coating on Gundam kits, for example, you can use bleach to strip that gold. Um, I use oven cleaner uh, mostly because I found it to be like one of the best actually. Um, but Americans use something called Purple Power, uh, which I would love to use. And apparently Purple Power is actually even better because it doesn't hurt the plastic as much. Okay. But, I mean, I've used bleach and I've used um, what's that? oven cleaner. And the plastic on my Hyakushiki, where I've stripped the gold from, is still pretty tough. Yeah. So I don't – yeah, and I think that's because it leans a little bit closer to that quote-unquote more matte plastic in that regard. Um, it's a similar kind of consistency to that. Right. I'm I'm too scared of peroxide uh, on my toys. I'm I have considered yeah. <laughs> I'm done with that. Maybe maybe what I just said, you know, when it's in the mm -hmm. netting or something. But um, after the defiant uh, debacle, no. <laughs> oh, okay. I had to replace both shuttles. 
Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. Damn, son. You you come into a, a fair bit of toys where you're situated, or are these all from uh, are these all imported from the United States? I mean, do you find stuff within Europe? Well, actually, um, the gold mine is Belgium in many yes. cases. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a good old half the battle. Tim is uh, stopping ground. <laughs> Lucky bastard. Steve, you were going to say something you were surprised or not surprised. Yes, I'm surprised yeah. that you didn't bring up your fix on my his tank, Paul. Oh, it yeah. Had droopy guns. <laughs> you fixed that right up. Yeah, that was... Uh, it's not the most elegant fix, but what I did is I built... Um, I I used some uh, two-pot putty, like milliput, I think it was, and then I drilled a hole or I created like a sort of a, a, a mouth to hold the guns in place and you know that millipad doesn't create the smoothest bore in there so then at least it gives the the, the gun some some bites to it uh, i'm trying to remember exactly what i did and then it i know that it moves I... pretty smoothly but it holds position in any orientation so it is it is it is a super fix and you even went as far as to build a console onto the the additional like shelf that you created it, yeah, it's fantastic uh... So you I built out yeah. towards the, 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 the operator with like an extra control panel. <laughs> you put some technological detail on there as well and painted it. Hey, Paulie, you you surpassed all expectations, my brother. Yay! I'm so glad yeah. to hear I did a good job. Yay! Well, I'm surprised <laughs> you didn't mention it yourself. I, I kind of, I actually forgot about it a little bit. I like forgot it. I kept thinking of your <laughs> Desert Fox that I did the paint scheme on. I totally forgot about the his tank. Huh. Cool. You Yay. also saved uh, one of my sort of toy nightmare situations. I bought the Locust, the tan version of the Dragonfly, which was released in 2001 in this sort of real American hero collection series of toys. Uh, I did not like the color of that tan. It seemed too flesh tone uh, to be an accurate desert camo. And uh, I know that the United States Marine Corps still use the co the Cobra attack helicopter, uh, and they go with a grey scheme for for their Cobras. So I was like, yeah, I'm gonna paint this up grey. I just got a can of primer spray paint and sprayed that sucker outside. <laughs> but then I was like, thinking the way to take this custom to the next level is to actually get the uh, so you know the Dragonfly canopy has the sort of like, uh, what would you call them? The 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 frame, the cockpit, the, the canopy frame, mm. is raised and should essentially be coloured in. You know, it should it should have the same colouring as the fuselage because it is not supposed to be transparent. It is supposed to be a a frame. So I masked off the the the, the parts that I wanted to stay transparent. I thought I'd done a good enough job. Passed the spray paint over it once or twice, pulled the masking off, and ah, oh, the masking had bled all over the transparent. Oh, so yeah, terrible. Then idiot over here decided, oh, that's cool. I'll fix it with some turpentine. <laughs> here, that's a bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> transparent plastic. It melted the transparent. It was disgusting. I dipped it in there, pulled it out, thinking. Oh, that's funny. Uh, it seems to have like you know the the, the 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 turpentine is taking a while to kind of like run off it, but no, that was just the plastic oozing 
<laughs> there is a safe product to use on transparent plastic. Oh, let's have it. It's a uh, WD-40. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Yes. Mm, okay. <laughs> I have a can in my cupboard. Yeah. Uh, I wish I'd known that then. Anyways, I tried all sorts to try and remove this paint or try and smooth out the plastic. I was sanding it, buffing it. Oh, dear. It was yeah. not a very forgiving plastic for any kind of... Uh... No, but, I mean, if you want to remove sticker residue, you can use, you, you can use that. Well, and so it works great on, um, on plastics. For example, with a his tank, sometimes you might think, hmm, if I use, for example, turpentine, the, the black might fade a bit. Then just use WD-40, and then uh, there's no risk. Oh, cool. It's a lubricant, right? Yeah. Now, WD-40, is. I've heard that you can use it for stuff like that. I know sometimes people, I know some people, like, have used it as sort of an emergency or product to strip, like, engine parts. You know, like, if they have, like, heavy amounts of grease on and stuff like that. Another thing you guys can actually use as well um, you can't use it as a topical sort of solution, as in, as in you can't take it and then wipe down a, a toy with it. But uh, another thing that can actually strip paint off quite well, surprisingly, is Coke. It's just expensive to do that. I mean, what? you pour a glass of Coke and you put, like, the painted thing in there and the Coke will eat the, the paint off it. Yeah, because um, of the acid, the high acidity of Coke. Acidity of it will take it off. That's one thing you can do. That's like an emergency. That's like, oh, you've messed it up. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. You can't get to a shop. You can't wait until the next day. You absolutely have to try and do it. Coke is pretty good because it doesn't do any damage to the plastic. Um, my number one go-to is always um, a product here we have uh, called Mr. Muscle. Uh, uh, it's uh, Johnson's and Johnson's product, I think it is. I'm not 100% sure on who makes it, but I use Mr. Muscle quite a bit, and that strips off acrylic. Even lacquer acrylics, um, not to be confused with lacquer paints, like enamel lacquers, but like uh, acrylic lacquers. It strips that off quite well, including Tamiya's primer and uh, Mr. Hobby's surfaces primer. If anybody out there is uh, interested and actually knows what I'm talking about, that's a very good thing to strip with or to strip stuff off. And if you are out there and if you want to avoid the mistake Steve made with bleeding masking, you can get yourself something called a liquid mask. Now, this is always a tricky one to bring up with people because we all have our favorite liquid masks. And uh, for some reason, liquid mask doesn't work the same for everybody. I have found a liquid mask that I like. It's done by Vallejo, uh, Vallejo or Vallejo, however you want to pronounce it. I think you know uh, the product. Uh, they do a very good liquid mask. I like it because it doesn't mess up your brushes too much if you try to use it. Obviously, you don't airbrush it. You hand brush it on. And all you do is you just wear some rubber gloves and you rub your model or uh, you rub wherever you've applied it. You rub it softly to, to take it off again. And that's always nice to – so if you've just put a mask on, you just use a little bit of liquid mask just to fix up any weird edges. Or rather, you put the liquid mask on first. And then you put on your tape or however you want to do it. But anyway, it's a good product. Uh, Humbrol's version, in my opinion, is the biggest load of shit, so don't use it. But uh, <laughs> Sorry, Germany. <laughs> no, no, listen, Germany make enough really awesome masking products, but that's one that you can avoid, the Humbrol one. So, yeah, it's the purple and it's just gross. It just it's never worked well for me, ever. But yeah, the Vallejo one is, is spot on. It's the best. It's, it's been the best for me thus far. 
Sorry, just, it just occurred to me that this uh, this mishap with the dragonfly slash locust happened back in 2011. I have only now, as of this weekend, purchased a replacement canopy. <laughs> it's taken me this long to kind of like own up to my own idiot error. Um, and it's it's rather ironic to note that the replacement part came out of the Netherlands. Ah. Ah. Interesting. There are, are definitely one or two dedicated uh, G.I. Joe sellers. Yeah, it's true. There's Sorry. one big one. He actually lives in the same city as I do. Okay. Oh, maybe I bought from him. That's very probable. He had a pogo that I had my eye on, but I was like, nope, nope, don't be a glutton. You came here for one thing. <laughs> he doesn't hey, ship over... Uh, he, I don't think he ships to South Africa, but he does ship to the UK, and my brother... Well, actually, my father's going over to visit my brother uh, on Monday, so... He'll pick up oh, okay. a parcel for me. <laughs> nice, nice. I, know, right? I I managed to get a mint in box Phantom X19 from Belgium. Talking about mm-hmm. Belgium being quite a, a sort of European hub for GI Joe vehicles. Um, yeah, I got a mint in sealed box Phantom X19 from wow. Belgium, and it was quite a surprise for me. Yeah. Like, what is the explanation for Belgium being like Europe's breadbasket of Joe? Yeah, I want to know this too. Well, what I do know, um, when we talk about a defiant, Belgium had in the past had a contest uh, that you could win a defiant. So there are a few out there. Mm. And uh, the fan club back in the day also uh, put a lot of effort into, well, setting up a good quality club. If I don't know if you've seen promotional material from from Belgium, but it's beautiful, you know, with Ooh. diorama photos and stuff. It's it's really beautiful. Very recently, Paul Panfalone of Plastic Battles put out a podcast on the topic of the Belgian catalog. And perhaps if you're in deep as as we are, uh, you know this catalog that I'm referring to. It is exquisite. Yeah. And and Paul made mention of the fact that it's one of the reasons why he got into photography. He just poured over these images, just the framing, the diorama, the the drama, the sense of storytelling yeah. that the creators of those setups had. And that was actually also done in some of the Dutch uh, uh, promotional folders, and I really love that. There's also great, oh, maybe Paul for you, there's also great Tiger Force uh, material for that. Yeah, I think I know what you, I think I've seen it. And, and I, I keep thinking it's you that sent it to us all those years ago. Like, I remember when, when the podcast was still very much in its infancy, one of our, oh, the fans, one of the Tiger Force, like crossing the river. Yeah. So yeah. one of our fans Ooh. sent us one or two pictures and I think it was you, Ronald. And I was like, I looked at this and I was like, I was just, I was just transported back, even though like I'd never seen this image before. It just, it hit me in the eighties. That's really beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like it was, it was, it reminded me of the old, um, and I'm sure if we look back at them now, they're quite crap, but it reminded me of the old, uh, Dino Riders catalog images. They were on the back of some magazine. They were always inside this little, um, you know, sort of one stop shop, uh, that I'd stop at on the way home from nursery school. And there was all these magazines on the counter. And I always look at the, and at the back, they always had these Dino Rider catalogs there. And they had a very similar feel, you know, all that sand and that realistic sort of background that they did for yeah. it. And it was just, Super immersive. Um, although I, I, I think the G.I. Joe ones are better than the Dino Rider ones were. But yeah, damn. <laughs> um, I actually, now that you mentioned, now that we're talking about Belgium just a little bit. So I have a little bit of Belgian heritage. 
when I was really small and I was with my grandparents quite a bit, uh, my grandparents were actually the ones who introduced me to things like Tinta and Asterix and, okay. uh, yeah, and, and comics generally like Spiro, uh, no, not Spiro. What is that other thing? It's like, yeah, but it was just mostly Tinta and uh, <laughs> Asterix. Lucky Luke, surprisingly not. Um, but yeah, my, my grandparents got me into that, you know, like, you know, and my grandmother was very big and very like sort of supportive of me reading comic books. Not not like, you know, she loved books and she loved giving giving me illustrated books and things like that. So she loved giving me all these Tintin books, but a lot of them that they had, they were still in Flemish, which was pretty cool. Um, and I could sort of understand them uh, because of the the language was being spoken around me a lot. And in a lot of ways, it has similarities to Afrikaans. So you do sort of pick up some things here and there. Anyway, um I know that Belgium has quite a good sort of culture when it comes to comics and cartoons and things like that. Was it the same for you as a kid when you were growing up in the Netherlands? Or what was the general take on things like G.I. Joe when you were growing up? Yeah, well, the topic of quality, you know, back to the topic of quality in that sense. I mean, if I look from my own perspective, but also um, if I think back uh, at my friends, then, you know, um, we all found G.I. Joe to be um, a beautiful toy and really mm. worth buying, getting. And and I remember the cartoon was also very um, convinc- convincing in that sense. It had great stories and, um, you know, stimulated the imagination. Mm. So, um, but I'm not sure the connection with the comic, that's something different, I suppose, because the uh, the re- the release of the GI Joe comic was done by the same um, company that also did all the uh, superheroes uh, comics. So yeah. that in that in that segment, so to say. So the comics you just mentioned, the the Belgian ones or yeah. and and French. That's that's a different uh, uh, quality altogether. Yeah, I can imagine that. I just know that there's a, a very strong sort of culture. In Belgium and in France, uh, I'm not sure about uh, about Netherlands, to be honest, but I know in Belgium and France, comic books and reading comic books and things like that aren't really frowned upon from a sort of cultural level. Because, right. Well, it's the same here, yeah. actually, in the Netherlands. Actually, here, what's very popular still in the Netherlands is the Donald Duck uh, comic. Um, yes, yeah, that thing's quite famous. Yeah. There's a weekly uh, magazine that, well, I think most families in the Netherlands are subscribed to. And uh, and the fun thing about it is that they always manage to um, to, to make some, you know, to, to integrate some jokes of contemporary affairs uh, into mm-hmm. the comic or, you know, uh, uh, some, some wow. celebrities or whatever. And that's that's a fun thing. Wow, that's actually really cool. That's quite unique to have Donald yeah. Duck contemporized. Yeah. yeah. I think we always, like all those classic characters are so old-timey. The fact that there is a publication that is ongoing and that is current, surviving in the Netherlands, yeah, and strong. people have a subscription to, so like it's, it's a captive market, that is astonishing. That's yeah. really cool. Mm. It's very popular. Amazing. So the topic of quality, that's something I would like to talk about because actually um, two things. So the quality of the plastic and sticker quality. Yeah. Um, I just watched a review from um, Who Did Cobra Commander? 
And yeah. he talked about the hammer and um, uh, what was the other one? Well, anyway, um, I know. Oh, yeah, the, the septic tank. There it is again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they have those paper stickers, hey? Right. The mm. thing is, because vehicles were released a bit later in Europe, I think there was time for a quality check. And what you what I noticed is that, for example, the septic tank in Europe came with uh, vinyl stickers, so waterproof stickers. Uh, and the same goes for the water shooting planes like the Liquidator and Storm Eagle. Which makes more sense. Yes, yeah. and it looked far better. Uh, yeah, but wow. do you like having blue bombs on your mud fighter? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose at this point we can pick and choose. Yeah. I certainly would prefer a uh, a Rolling Thunder that has hubcaps to a Rolling Thunder that has none. Also, for example, um, uh, plastic quality. Um, I've had a Dragonfly from the US once, which had br a very brittle rotor blade. And uh, also um, an American water moccasin with very brittle uh, veins. It's a very common issue. And if I compare that to the European release of the same toys, then mm. I suspect a different type of plastic has been used because there's no such no such issue. I would say it cuts both ways though, Ronald. I have a European release Warthog and it plays very nicely with its own parts, but were betide you try and replace the missile stem from uh, a United States release because they won't play nicely. You will break off teeth from the, uh, the, the, the housing. I think the, the, the European Warthog, correct me if I'm wrong, is a brittle plastic. The American one is slightly more taffy, if that makes any sense. It's, it has a bit more give. More pliable, um, yeah. Okay. Yes. And I would suggest that, that perhaps the, you know, the, the more brittle plastic can be more sharply tooled and, and, and molded. I mean, it it's, has a more fineness to it. Yeah. Uh, whereas the, you know, to, to, to put the American missile stem into the European shell, you're going to break something and it ain't going to be the American part. Yeah, because if <laughs> I think about the construction of that missile stand and how it, you know, is connected to the Warthog hull, then it's not something that should be separated ever again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and if the if the parts are machined slightly larger than yeah. the original stem, it's going to definitely crack off a few yeah. of those teeth. But because, for example, the hammer, you know, the mm -hmm. the, the 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 infamous uh, brittle antenna, with with if you buy the European release, it's it's still flexible. Okay. Hmm. Good to know. Yeah. Of course, after watching Hooded Cobra Commander's review and seeing my hammer with, uh, you know, it's missing antenna, I was like, huh, I got a hack for that. Took a piece of wire, mm -hmm. kinked it on the one end so that it could fit into that key and hold in its position, uh, and then s slid the, the other end into the hole for the... Antenna. Oh, yeah, the... There you go, buddy. Yeah, it's done. beautiful, and, it's, <laughs> and it's, I'm sure you know, it, it it's, looks it's, great. It right? it looks amazing, you know, the integration of like different materials, like a bit of metal on a, a classic GI Joe vehicle doesn't look out of place, particularly if it is for something like an antenna. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah, you could go one step further and use guitar wire if you wanted to. Ah, uh, yes, your Gundam hack, Paul. Very nice. Yeah. You Just integrate guitar wire into what the joints sort of yeah, expose, I... like a spring, springy looking. I don't know, conduit. On the few occasions in Gundam kits where there's actually some form of expo- uh, exposed uh, cabling, uh, like like really big like sort of power cables or something that you can see in the frame that are that aren't, aren't covered by armor, um, then yeah, I like to use something like guitar wire because it gives it a really nice, just gives it a good texture. It just looks sexy. It looks so much better than the plastic molded version of it. And uh, I, I was wondering, um, do you ever rearrange the uh, stickers on a vehicle <laughs> uh, uh, okay so having uh, had the opportunity to open both a, a phantom x19 and a mamba mint and box i gotta say uh yeah i was pretty meticulous and kept my stickers as they told me to put them on there i think i was just being wanted it to be 100 percent right um but but as you well know, a lot of the times, uh, the way that they indicate stickers use uh, like in the blueprints or the way that they show you how to place them, I wouldn't say it's incorrect. I just find that it's not very clear, mm-hmm. and it does sort of open itself up to interpretation. And right. uh, on a few occasions, I've had to sort of think, well, what is the best place? Where's the best place to put the sticker so that it's not in the way of my hands or not in the way of a functional part or not going over to joining sections or something like that? So, yes, uh, I have been quite experimental with the stickers, but I don't go crazy and put them wherever I wanted to. Like I know when I was a kid, I would be like, that's a main sticker. That's the same as the box. That's the same as the box. That's the same as the box. And then I'd look in the manual and be like, no, I prefer it here. I'd prefer it there. You know, I'd just be crazy like that. Now it's like a serious pet peeve of people who put stickers on a vehicle in the wrong way. It drives me absolutely crazy. But that's <laughs> often, and that's not because I'm some aficionado. It's not like I have Steven vision where I can look at it and go, oh, they put that sticker in the wrong place. It's more because, and I say this with respect, a lot of people don't have a good eye for design proportions. Mm. So they tend to cluster stickers or put stickers in, down in a way that is just not very realistic or believable or at the very least it's aesthetically appealing. And that well, that's what drives me crazy when people are trying to be creative, but they're actually being repetitive. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, why do you ask? <laughs> so do you put all the no steps on your Sky Strikers, Ron? <laughs> That's repetitive, my goodness. I'm asking about this because when you buy a used vehicle, uh, in most cases, the stickers are, well, not as they should be or a bit crooked. And um, mm-hmm. if you, for example, look at the Rattler um, that Stephen uh, received, uh, those stickers have been removed and, you know, put back on the right place. I thought mm. they were repro labels. No. My word, Ron. Those are original stickers. Well, that is incredible because they are, they're flush fit. I mean, whatever adhesive you used. No, so that's the trick. With many European release uh, vehicles, you can reuse the original sticker. Incredible. Wow. Without any additional adhesive. In, no, no. In, in many cases, you just need uh, scissors to to cut, you know, uh, a dirty piece of the edge or something, uh, and that's it. Wow, that's Incredible. good to know. 
Mm. Yeah. He's my tiger fish. Of course, <laughs> you know, you've got to kind of get under there in a way that doesn't bend the sticker or yeah. uh, warp it in any way. I mean, you can't use, uh, you can't pull it. No, in, in many cases, you just have to create a small corner uh, that that is, you know, disposable later. And mm -hmm. then uh, you just cut around the image and then uh, put it back. That is incredible. Ronald, thank you. I mean, I know I've thanked you in person, but thank you on record for not only hooking us up, but also the meticulous work that you did to make these toys as presentable as possible. My goodness, they photograph beautifully. <laughs> yeah, I want to play with that rattler. Just taking it out into the sunlight and seeing the depth of that blue. It is an immaculately restored piece and it warms my heart every time I, I take it up, which is often enough, but not as often as I'd like. It was really fun to see it in the in video. Yeah. Expect to see more of it. The Rattler is a classic. It's a mainstay. It's it's always punching above its weight. I hope it wins sometime, you know, just carpet bomb the Joes and, and you know, a victory laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Showing your true allegiances, are we? <laughs> to hell with the Sky Striker. It's all about the Rattler, baby. <laughs> Speaking of, is there a plot line that uh, you want played out, G.I. Joburg web series style? Oh, a plot line. Um, yeah, is there something that, that you've got a burning desire to see play out <laughs> that maybe hasn't happened in, in other contemporary G.I. Joe media? Wow. Well, you know, I have a political mind. And I'm also, I'm, I'm always interested in all kinds of, uh, you know, large schemes and... Um, and, you know, if you can put that somehow in a video th that you just hint at it or something, that's something larger behind it. That's interesting. Like in the comics, there was the, you know, the Terradrome operation or, you know, the basic function of a Crimson Guard. Maybe that's mm. a good, that's a good, you know. The uh, jugglers. Yeah, the jugglers, you know, that sort of storylining. That's what I really love. We got ourselves a, 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 a challenge, a, a Clancy sort of esque feel that we have to sort of get here. I'm Clancy. not sure how, how that should be put in a video, but that's something I like story wise. Yeah. Well, the fun thing is like, the scripting can take it anywhere. I mean, if you create a scene that is just really talking heads, you can create high drama just in right. the, the way they interact and the the, the vocal performances. Uh, Mostly what we've been doing is kind of let the letting the, the visual style drive whatever we're doing. It's like, I think to myself, well, I want to chase along the, the desert floor between an ore striker and a pair of uh, ferrets. Boom. No, how do we you motivate know, that? that? That's, I'm on, yeah. yeah, honestly, just thinking in terms of like action set pieces. But perhaps we've got the level of critical engagement now. We've kind of reached a kind of threshold where people would be intrigued by literally like an interrogation room scene with some cool down lighting. Yeah, Dr. An interesting Cobra in the, sort of yeah. big wig in the, the hot seat, as it were, mm. and some G.I. Joe hard case sweating him over. Or, or the some, other way around. Yeah, or some plotting of Serpentor against the commander, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. Okay, so it doesn't have to be geopolitical. It can be internal to Cobra. Yeah, I was thinking like, oh, geez, do we have to have like some kind of rogue state or 
or you know as you, the, the, the example you cited about the pterodromes being sold to Frusenland. right <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah no okay we can do that i know rob is dying for a political debate set piece with wild boar in the lead no <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just I saw that toy the other day, and Rob sort of mentioned wild boar, and it sort of stuck in my head. I was like, I'm gonna put that in a podcast somewhere. So this is the one. Before I forget, I really want to um, compliment you guys with the videos you make. Thank you, Ron. Especially the 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 more recent videos with uh, with the storylines. Uh, I think what what you've got going on is that you're actually making uh, the toys interesting to to a new generation as well uh, i think you mentioned that once or twice Stephen. that mm. actually people you would not suspect would, would watch the videos actually did so i think you know by showing uh what you can do with imagination and and how much fun you can have with the toys that's really something that uh, can only be demonstrated by actually creating a video like this Oh, thanks, Ronald. That's, that's very thoughtful of you. And absolutely, it is our sort of our highest goal, I suppose, to just remind people that these are playthings and, and what binds us all is this kind of ongoing desire to, to role play, to create imaginary scenarios and, and live them out. And that, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily just have to be a static thing on a, on a shelf. Like right. each of these are our little, little avatars, little, you know, protagonist in this ongoing adventure. And now we can have these adventures spanning continents, cross oceans and nations. Like we're all kind of united under uh, this one banner of the fact that, you know, we we might have lived worlds apart, but we all sh- almost shared the same childhood. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's wonderful. And it has, yeah, no, the, I, I certainly hope that uh, we're in a position to, to j- just keep doing these because... I absolutely love the the response that it gets. Yeah. Of course, it is um just a huge propaganda piece. I'm literally putting forth my vision of GI Joe in the hopes that one day maybe it uh it will kind of inform uh I don't know some someone who's in a position to revive GI Joe in mainstream mm. media. It's a vision we we share, Stephen. So that's that's why I really. I'm very supportive of of your channel. Thank you. It is it is very gratefully received. <laughs> <laughs> do you think, uh, like hypothetically speaking, do you think if like somebody from Hasbro has been, and I'm not saying that it's just us. I mean, has been no, actually, no, no, no. If so- sorry, buddy, the GI Joe stalwarts of Hasbro were all fired. Yes, I know that. I know that. Uh, also, it seems, you know, the Daryl DePriest, the Bobby Vallas of the world, they were all on the chopping block. And they are bitter about it. It is hilarious. Very entertaining to listen to interviews with those two gentlemen. No, well, I don't I don't blame them. I, I know what that can feel like. I've been in a similar situation like that before, um, not having worked for Hasbro, but in something, you know, somewhere that I really enjoy being there and, you know, I helped build up the company and did a lot of stuff with them and then also kind of felt snubbed. So I can, I can, I can just imagine what it's like for them. Actually, it's, it must be really off pissing. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be any less bitter about it if I was in their position, but just hypothetically, I just, it's actually more, this is a super hypothetical, you know, 
if somebody was like for example who doesn't know anything about gi joe and was trying to do some research about gi joe for the brand and happened to listen to our podcasts and for some reason decided that our voice was one of the their stronger sort of inspirations or their stronger um, influences should i say on the brand i wonder what they would do like i wonder how the toys would look and how they would change and and if they would change things I like to think that they would slowly possibly start releasing kind of like diorama-esque items with the toys themselves, or maybe look at like do something similar to PTE where they would release like a diorama set with like two Joe figures um, in order to create scenarios. You know, like I wonder like that. I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm just saying theoretically in my mind, this is sort of how I've played it out. Like, what would our show inspire in me if I was the Hasbro, if I was like the new guy on the G.I. Joe account and I had to like now re, you know, rebuild this brand? And that's probably what I would sort of start looking at doing is like including sort of diorama stuff. Because if I'm seeing that it's appealing to kids and kids are making videos um, based on, you know, the videos that this this bunch of dudes called G.I. Joe Berg and, you know, other people have done then maybe they want diorama pieces, you know, where they're going to get all those cool, like small tables and tents and things. Oh yeah. We'll just give it to them, you know, and stuff. Anyway, that's, I mean, this is all wishful thinking. It's all blue sky, you know, it's just a thought I had, <laughs> but it would be cool. Actually. I wouldn't say no. I would love more diorama stuff for Joe's. Um, and it's so difficult. If, you know, if we were collecting one to 12 figures, one to 12 scale figures, wow. You're you're actually spoiled for choice. There's so much amazing one to twelve scale diorama pieces out there, from the sides of buildings to hot springs to arcade cabinets. Everything is all made for one to twelve scale, and that's the Figma line and the Mafix line. If anybody listening is wondering, those are mostly made in the one to twelve scale. Well, one of the questions I was just curious about is where, Ron, where did you get your toys? Um, was it, I mean. Where were the toys available? Was it just toy stores or was there specific places that you went to? You mean back in the day? Yeah, back in the day when you were a kid. Yeah, well, various toy stores. But of course, you're, well, as a kid, you're dependent on on what's available locally. And yeah. also wherever your parents are going to when you want, when you're going for a larger one, you know, the other cities. So in that sense, your options are, are limited. Mm. But it's it's just amazing to me that you guys, I mean, it always amazes me that, I mean, Europe just had such a lot easier access, I think, than we did. And and hopefully not too much further along than from when America got it, because I think with us, it often took two to three years before we even saw anything, because I think often it had to go through Europe to get to us. I think my, my greatest win in the past would be uh, getting a Baroness figure uh, by doing a trade with a friend. Uh, because that was at a time that actually the Baroness figure was never available in uh, in the Netherlands. Maybe, maybe as an action force uh, release or something. But by the time I got interested, those early figures were not available anymore, if, if ever. So... Um, but at some point, a friend of mine had had a had a Baroness figure. I don't know where he he got it from, but 
I traded it for a mill in a hooded cobra commander because I knew I could still, you know, order many of those. So, <laughs> and you know, the, the gold was getting a bit uh, uh, worn out anyway, so I needed a new one. So that was my greatest uh, trade, and I really cherished the, the Baroness figure because it was, you know, impossible to get. That's insane, yeah. Because I, I think. I mean, often with the female figures, they they did. They obviously, I, I don't think they made less, but there were obviously there were less of them. But but it's mm. amazing though that that I mean that you had such a difficult time because usually female figures are, well, just back then I think were were peg warmers a lot of the time. Yeah, but I I do believe some of those early figures were just never released in the Netherlands. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking. Perhaps the first like carded releases in the Netherlands were similar to our first carded release. It was the 1985-1986. It, it started series. in uh, 1987 here. Okay, but I'm mean, I'm saying in terms of releases, it was what would be the 85-86. Yes. Uh, yeah, so sort of yeah, group from the states. Right. Yeah. So shipwreck, yes. airtight, dusty, mixed in with sci-fi and uh, th- uh, monkey wrench. Yeah. Uh, lifeline those guys yeah those came a year later i suppose yeah and curiously enough on those card backs i think i recall seeing both the cobra trooper and 1984 storm shadow so actually uh, Stephen, that also led to the situation that on the cobra end uh and also on the gi joe end there was never really at least at the beginning never a leader available True. So yes. the Crimson Twins were, you know, the boss. <laughs> oh, they were definitely packaged that way. Yeah, yeah. I also yeah. remember thinking they were quite important because of the yeah. way they were packaged. They looked like leadership figures, and I thought, oh, they go well with the ferret, so I bought them. But um, <clears throat> but the Cobra Commander only became available as a mail-in, and later, of course, the battle armor version. Yeah. But I was well in in the special missions uh, comic. It was uh, stated that it was a Crimson Guardsman, so I never really, you know, uh, saw that one as legit. Mm. <laughs> yes, no, neither did I. It, just, it didn't look right. It said Cobra Commander on the package, but I was like, that ain't Cobra Commander. <laughs> so I never, I never troubled to buy him. Yeah. Gosh. On the topic of Storm Shadow, Ronald, would you class him as a Joe or a Cobra? And what is he? Mm. I think he has his own uh, allegiance, basically. Perfect answer. Bam! Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You don't have to say he's a Joe or a Cobra. You can just say he's on his own team. I think so. Yeah. 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 No. He's team Good Storm man. Shadow. Good man. We are we are birds of a feather there. In in the end, he supports his family, his clan, right? Mm. So yeah. Yes, that's definitely where his allegiance lies. Nice. Good. 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 Yeah. It would be an over- oversimplification to call him one or the other. I, I love, I love, you know, those gray area uh, characters because mm. that's that's actually uh, that that connects to real life. So who else would you say falls into that category? Well, there are some options. Um, for example, Destro. Uh, okay. Because he's not. I don't really see him as an, an enemy figure. Um, to me, he's, you know, a businessman, arms dealer. 
It could be selling the, the same, well, not the same, but uh, weapons to both, you know, the Joes and the Cobras and, you know, um, and buying a beautiful bottle of champagne uh, with, the, with the proceeds. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, he'd definitely be sort of fulfilling his his family legacy. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of, and he's also really, well, I'm not sure, well, how should I say it? It's, it's, it's a bit of a gray area there. Would you say Snake Eyes also treads the gray area? Because he seems to be, uh, I mean, the way, the way Harmer sort of, um, progressed the character towards the sort of the, the hundreds of the, the G.I. Joe run. I mean, he, he is a bit of a loose cannon. He's yes. a, a solo operative. I yeah. mean, and he doesn't always kind of do what he's, what yeah, I, I don't know and unless the 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 higher ups are using him specifically he kind of is uh, left to his own devices i, I think the uh the, the gi joe hierarchy accepts the fact that he is you know uh going uh his own way and exactly because of his talents and they, they condone it yeah <laughs> they just hope that he uh keeps Completing missions or, or taking missions or, or or doing things that uh, that they like as opposed to yeah. You're just giving me a cool idea for the webisodes. <laughs> Ooh, mm, I'm gonna keep oh it. Yeah, I'll share it later. All right, all right. Share it internally. No spoilers. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, no. I mean, Snake Eyes has yet to be debuted in our sort of format, and there's a reason for that. I mean, but I was thinking maybe there are also some characters who who don't really have a very you know likable personality but still belong to the good guys or something um let me Wait, see. i mean uh deep six <laughs> yeah for example yeah. six uh, you know mm. yeah i like that they like don't really shine as the typical good guy but still they do belong to that team i've always liked that concept it's it's taken well when i say always it's taken me a while to sort of grow to that kind of idea but like it's actually a very sort of brave storytelling element and a very brave character element to add to anything um, that you're trying to market to to people, you know, to you know that you're trying to make uh, people facing, you know, because like and, and I'm sure we can all attest to this in some way or another. When we have written stories or have had to write a story um, in our youth and when we were in high school or maybe even afterwards. And I'm, and I know we, you know, we can laugh at ourselves because I know that we're all guilty of this. And if you are still guilty of, of this, well, then you have to learn to, to evolve as a writer, I suppose. But it is a, a common sort of uh, trope for young writers or inexperienced writers to always write a character that is not perfect, but it's always good looking, you know, bright, you know, great, like steely eyes, you know, great features, great hair, you know, good physique, really good at like 50,000 martial arts, you know, it can do all of these things. Like it's like this character. I mean, it's essentially the Mary Sue character that I'm talking about now, but right. you know, that is, that is sort of, you know, always that's evidence of, of an inexperienced or a weak writer, somebody who doesn't really understand character. And GI Joe is so cool in that the character that could be written up as a Mary Sue is actually uh, snake eyes because of how like great he is, but he's actually not, an easy person. It's like, He's it's not like, Gary oh, Stu. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? um, Gary Stu. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you've got a character like Wetsuit, who is actually a personable human being. He just chooses to be a dickhead most of the time. 
and that's cool. These are still the good guys. And it, and it teaches people that, you know, like you don't always have to be Mr. Nice guy all the time. You know, you, you know, you, you, you can, for the most part, sort of be yourself. And that's something. You mean deep six, of course. Sorry, I meant deep six, not red six. <laughs> all the Navy men, they're all the same. <laughs> they're all the same. Um, yeah. I think, you know, the, the, the imperfections really gave the characters depth. I am. Um, exactly. I think that, uh, reading all the file cards, it, it really made them more real and you could relate to them more. Mm. True. Also gives great fodder for uh, characterizing them in our little, I don't know, our little endeavors. Uh, there's always a, a drive in however few words a, a character might be able to pipe up and say within a web series to try and let the information of the the, the file card shine somehow. Yeah, and yeah, it's all like... nuggets. They're they're great. I mean, the fact that those each figure had a a biog just made this so much more real to us. I like the saying, but it's like it's what happens in between the scenes that makes the characters and yeah, you know, makes a drama. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, I think we uh, might be. Wrapping things up, does anyone have any other talking points they'd like to to lodge before we chasse away? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've definitely enjoyed this. Um, it, it's nice to kind of get an idea of the the Europe, European experience, or at least the, the the Dutch experience of kind of collecting Joes. And it, it's it's really amazing that you you kind of spend your time fixing up stuff and, and making it, it better than it was when you received it. Um, I, th- I think that that's a really good endeavor. And it's nice to know that there are perfect pieces, or at least as close to perfect pieces of G.I. Joe figures and vehicles out there somewhere. Um, you know, 100 years from now, they're going to find your collection, Ron. <laughs> well, that that's mm-hmm. another topic, you know. I, I sometimes think, hmm, you know, we're all collectors. What happens when we reach a certain age? You know? Absolutely, Ron. That's something I, I sometimes think about as well. And I, I still don't have an answer, actually. Uh-oh. I don't have you an answer. Give it to Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually just uh, formalized my will. <laughs> my last will and testament. Oh, no. Very amusing to uh, bequeath my toys. Just don't give it to Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't give it to... Oh, yeah, okay. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, that's what you were writing on your wall. It's like, don't give that to Paul. (laughs) I think think one of the things I'd like to say about this, you know, uh, thinking about your videos, you know, um, uh, take the stuff outside, have fun with it, and and let them shine, you know, for what they are, their toys. I appreciate that sentiment, Ron, particularly yeah, totally. from someone who has such an immaculate collection that that uh, that means a lot, I'd say, um, because there is the danger of things getting scuffed or broken or yeah. or slightly slightly damaged. Uh, just today, Rob and I took the old flag out and shot some yeah. things in the ocean, and you know, it's always at the back of your mind thinking, okay, if this falls probably going to smash and break and yeah. I'll have to get the old Tamiya cement out again. But <laughs> for my purposes, at least if you manage to commit them to commit these images to, to, uh, to the silver screen or at least the little screen on YouTube, some of it will live forever. That's, that's always a very heartwarming 
idea, I suppose. Yeah, and and, and to, to add to that, also, you know, what's more important, the experience. Ah, yes. Even though it's, it can sometimes be maddeningly infuriating, <laughs> trying to get these things to behave. <laughs> yeah, if, if you just put it on the shelf, and it, it's like, you know, um, being afraid to live or something, you know, it's, it's, mm. you know, and then, and then not having that experience. So when you take the, the toys out and really, you know, in their actual environment and uh, let them shine the way you do, then uh, it's like living, you know, that's, that's, mm. yeah, that's how I would see it. Wow. Oh, good. Always appreciate what you've got. And, and it's it's a sentiment that I've always mm, I've always kind of sat on my opinions whenever I've been reading Facebook posts about people getting huge hauls and you know like coming into massive sort of yard sales of Joes and stuff. All very fine and well, great, wonderful, but there is this constant like notion in the collecting community of like what's next, what's next, what's next, mm. you know. I'm on the hunt for some for this this and this and the next thing. And That's once I've got that, then I'll be happy. Uh, it's like oh, really, but you've got a groaning collection already. Yeah. What else do you need? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but exactly, Stephen. I mean, some of uh, when I read Facebook posts, some of the collectors uh, actually are uh, thinking of uh, selling all their stuff once the the feeling for the hunt is over. But uh, Actually, when when I look at my own collection, I think you know I'm very happy with what I have, and and, and I enjoy it every day. Even even if from from this day on there would be no you know new additions, I would be perfectly happy. Hmm. There is comfort in reaching that that stage. Mm. Like, sure, we all enjoy toy hunting, and it's probably an enjoyment that I don't think will actually necessarily fade. But to reach a stage in your collecting where you're like, if I didn't buy another toy, I'd be happy because I already know that the best that's out there already resides under this roof. Yeah. Yeah. G.I. Joe and Mask. That's your poison, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm still three Gs. <laughs> well, yeah, Paul, you, you have uh, undertaken to get all the classic G.I. Joe uh, releases. Okay. Well, power to you, my man. Thanks, man. And guys, just like, you know, while we, and, and just to add to, to what Ron has said now as well, with regards to me going after a carded uh, collection, that's not because I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, it's not the, the hunger or whatever for the chase. It's because these toys excite me and I really do want to have them all. And it's not like I'm unsatisfied now. I love my collection. It was, it was so cool. You know, it's one of my favorite things is to, when I get a whole bunch of toys is to give each and every one of them their own sort of time and attention and play with them a little bit and, and get, you know, sort of acquainted with them so that I know that they, that they're mine. The only thing is I just need to get over the fact that they only really exist to me when they've got gear, but I need to stop doing that. But, um, <laughs> but aside from that, yeah, that's, there's just, I purposely actually left toys, uh, GI Joe figures out there that I want. I've purposely left them, um, alone so that they are like toys that I can get excited about and and, and to use them to collect, uh, finish my collection, you know, uh, for example, like it's a silly thing, but like I'm one figure away from like fi uh, finishing 88 and I'm like two or three figures away from 87 or something like that. I need to double check this, but like, it's just cool that I'm like, Oh, okay. Lightfoot. It's a toy I had as a kid. 
it'll be a nice way to cap off that series, you know, that that's like, you know, and it's a great toy to have, you know, I've given Tripwire some time and some love, um, at least my Tiger Force Tripwire, and um, now I can, you know, hand it over to the new sort of, you know, bomb detection and disposal, you know, dude for a while, and and get excited about that toy, it's, it's a good feeling. I'm also like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and uh, it's the same thing, you know, with vehicles, I think I'm pretty much sorted with vehicles. There are three vehicles I'd still love to have, but the nice thing is they're out there. There's no shortage of rolling thunders in the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, it's like... Well, there might be a shortage of gantries with unbroken clips. That's a hack that I'm dying to, to, to pick your brain about, Ron, but maybe I'll do that uh, privately. <laughs> How to get the, the missiles to stay, you know, once those those points have broken clean off. Yeah. Short of actually replacing the parts. I mean, I suppose that's always an option. Um, on the way out, I'd like to mention two things. Number one, Blazing Sand Part 5. The saga concludes this weekend, hey, Saturday. Hey, well, Saturday if you're in the United States. It'll be Sunday if you're in Australia or, or Asia. So check the socials for that announcement. And Bobby Valor's Action Force will begin its crowdfunding venture on Kickstarter on the 14th of June. This is a series of, I think there's six inches, of modern military action figures with a compelling plot line in support of them. They are gorgeous, and they're made by one of the best men in the game. And one of the coolest men in the game. Just want to put that out there. Bobby Vella is awesome, man. If if you're considering uh, being a, a six-inch collector, maybe you are already definitely worthy uh, of your attention on Kickstarter. Check out Valiverse.com. Check out what he's doing. And uh, watch this space. We might be able to get the man on the show. Which we're super excited about. Well, I am. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Well, well, thank you so much, Ron. It, it's been a, a pleasure listening to you. you. You talk about what you do and, and your experiences. And thank you for sharing that picture. Um, it's 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 awesome to be able to look into someone's you know past and to be able to go, so that's where something like this started. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you, guys. I mean, it's a pleasure talking to you and sharing you know thoughts about, about the hobby. <laughs> Wish uh, we could do this more, but uh, yeah, it's wonderful. Well, you know, the doors always open, Ron. Just go, hey, I'd love to like talk toys with you guys, and then we'll make a plan. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, likewise, man, it's been awesome to, to have a proper full-on discussion with you. I've learned a lot. And yo, Joburg, everybody. Absolutely. Adios, Knowing adios, half adios. the battle, guys. Adios. <laughs>